Well, we are in the second week of a series that we have called, They Are Us. And we're focusing on key figures of the Bible who have experienced change and who wanted change and who represent some of the fundamentals if your change is going to be lasting. Particularly, we're looking at people whose names end with us because they are us. And so last week we looked at Zaki. And we realized, looking at him, that, man, every life can be changed. My goodness, if God could go in and change Zacchaeus, certainly anybody can change. Now, next week, we're going to begin to look at, we're going to begin to look at some of the fundamentals, the ingredients that go into helping you to change. In other words, some of the practical steps that you need to take to cooperate with God's changing work within you. Guys, let me show you a scripture right here. It's so important as you kick off this year and think about how your life is going to be changed uh, in knowing Jesus better. Take a look at Philippians right here. Look at what it says. It says, therefore, my dear friends, Paul writes this. He's toward the end of his life. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to, let's read it together, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Now, I love this scripture because it describes two things. It describes God working in you, which is where it begins, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that today. But it says that you and I have a responsibility to work out what God is working in, that there's a cooperation involved with God that we begin to apply the things that he shows us and put into action those things that he moves us toward. And so we work out what he works in, our salvation. By the way, if you said the word salvation to anyone in the New Testament, they immediately would have thought of the Old Testament exodus from Egypt and how the Israelites were delivered. Salvation means deliverance. Can you say the word deliverance? It means my life has been changed for the better. I have been delivered from something. He's saying, work out your deliverance. Do it carefully. Do it with fear and do it with trembling because God is doing something in there. And boy, we love to talk about this at the beginning of the year in January because there's no better time to be thinking about that because there's something about new beginnings. And God is the God of new beginnings. Now, today... I want to pick up in week two, and I want to talk to you. If you just grab these notes, I want to talk to you about what I'm calling deep down change. And I'm going to specifically focus on God's part of the work. But I do want to touch on the attitude or the disposition that human persons have to have in order to receive salvation for change, deliverance for change, and power. I want to talk to you about your attitude. And what demonstrates a true willingness to change? Because see, if I asked, give me a show of hands for everyone that wants to change, probably all of you would say to some degree, oh yeah, I'd like to change for this, or I'd like to start doing this or do that. But there is a disposition that human beings have to have if God is going to do his essential work in the life. Attitude is everything. So let me just kick off with this first point. In fact, it's the only point number one that I'm going to make today. And then on my whole message is supporting this one point. Are you ready? Here's the point if you just write this down. If you're going to really change, 
Your change has to be more than superficial. It has to be more than superficial. Or it has to be more than cosmetic. Now, what do I mean? For example, a new coat of paint on a house that's falling apart doesn't do anybody any good. Is that right? It doesn't help you to dress up a house that's fallen apart. You could prune a tree, but if the tree is rotten at the root, you've got a problem, no matter how much you prune that tree. And so, this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In fact, if you have that scripture, you should probably just circle those two words, you must be born again. Because what he's saying is, Nicodemus, for change to happen, you've got to go deeper. Now, if that's true, and I think you can take Jesus at his word, but if that's true, what does going deeper mean? Or in other words, what does born again actually mean? What is it? What does it accomplish? Now that, guys, this is an amazing question. Because in America today, if you ask the average person, and by the way, you can look this up, Gallup polls will tell you this. If you ask people, the average American, what does born again mean? They're usually gonna give you one or two misconceptions or they're gonna give you both. And I'm gonna give them to you right now. These are misconceptions about what born again is all about. Maybe you have some of these. Here's misconception number one. It's a misconception that born again means to have a profound emotional or ecstatic experience. Now, when you ask somebody, well, what does it mean that you're born again? Or what does it mean that that person's born again? They'll probably say something like, well, they had some profound awakening. They had this real emotional experience. And being born again is at very best a deep, cathartic, meaningful event that happened. And by the way, most of the people that'll say that will say it's especially for broken people. Born again is especially, you know, for convicts and drug addicts. Born again is for people whose temperaments are like, you know, Pastor Shane, all emotional, you know. And it's for, you know, a culture that's highly emotional. In fact, you show me a church that's highly emotional and they've got all these born again people. Those are the weird ones, they say, you know. That's a misconception of what being born again is. Now, let me give you another misconception of born again. Another misconception is that being born again means that you are a person who chooses to live within tight moral boundaries. Maybe very strict or traditional or authoritarian. You've got this moral structure that's tight. And in much the same way that being born again is a deep experience for people who need this, you know, this emotional catharsis. It also seems that born-again people are people who take upon themselves these really tight moral limitations. In other words, you ask somebody, what does a born-again person look like? And they'll probably say, oh, well, those born-again people, you know, they're the ones that see everything in black and white, you know. I mean, just the other day, I overheard somebody say, literally, I just was in an earshot, and I heard them say, well, she doesn't smoke, she doesn't drink, and she doesn't sleep around. She's a born-again Christian. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, makes sense. You think it's those people who need that kind of, you know, moral security. That's what people think. 
They think if you're one of those born-again Christians, you're somebody that's either, you know, really emotional or you've adopted this strict moral system. Now, guys, I got to say, I'm so excited to be sharing this message with you right now about deep change because, not just because I'm born again and I'm emotional, but because you've got to look at who Jesus is talking to here. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And fortunately for you and me, Nicodemus is the complete opposite of both of those stereotypes. Now, I want you to think about this. Nicodemus is not a broken, emotionally fragile kind of person. In fact, would you do me a favor? Let's study the text. Look at verse 1. It says, Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, what that means is that Jerish was a, that, that, um, that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but he was a part of this highest order of the Sanhedrin group. Now, right away, because of that, you know several, th- several things about him. Let me tell you what those are. First of all, we know that he was old <laughs> because you didn't just get there unless you were an older man. So he was definitely old. Second, he was a man, which means he doesn't have a high emotional IQ. <laughs> <laughs> Third, no, no offense, guys. Third, he was rich because the Sanhedrin, unlike the average Pharisee, Sanhedrin clan were rich because they were collaborators with the Roman government. He was rich. Fourth, he was educated. He was learned because these guys were teachers. In fact, you look at verse 10, what does Jesus say? He says, you are Israel's what? Teacher, you can go ahead and put that on the screen. You are Israel's teacher, he said. And that's a technical term, by the way. This term that he's using means you have a PhD from an Ivy League school. You are a scripture scholar. You're a part of the accredited establishment. You're part of the cultural elite. Now, guys, basically, this is who he is. And not only that, but let me, let me give you a little more wisdom here about Nicodemus. Nicodemus? Nicodemus. He's not spiritually seeking. Most of the commentators, they'll tell you, this guy's not spiritually seeking. Now you say, well, he went to Jesus? Of course he was spiritually seeking. No, no, no. Most of the commentators and scholars will tell you all the evidence points to he was not spiritually seeking. For example, he goes at night. He came to Jesus at night. Now, why? What is it that he's doing? He's backroom politicking. That's what he's doing. Now, you guys have to think about this. You have a man here who represents a group of people, the religious establishment. He's high up in the establishment. He's coming to Jesus at night because he doesn't want people to see him. And what does he say to Jesus? He says, Jesus, we don't know what to make of you, but some of us might want to play ball with you, Jesus. Now, you have the establishment going to Jesus. See, some of us, Jesus, some of us see that we, we see that you're a tremendous teacher. And some of us see that your miracles are genuine. You're a man certainly to be reckoned with. Guys, this is the voice of the establishment saying, Jesus, we'd like you to get involved with us. We think you could help us, and we think we can help you. That's what's going on here. He's not spiritually seeking. He's not emotional. He's not having problems. He's reached the top. He's older. He's content. He's intellectual. He's a man. He doesn't go for all that emotional stuff. 
Here's the other thing I'd say about him. You guys got to get this about Nicodemus. He's not looking for a moral structure. People say those born-again people are people that are looking for a moral structure. He's not looking for a moral structure. He's a Pharisee. Pharisees had hundreds of rules to follow. This guy is as structured as you could possibly be. And yet Jesus, (laughs) Jesus looks at him and says, you must be born again. You. He chooses the one person who's not looking to have a profound or ecstatic experience, who doesn't smoke, who doesn't drink, he doesn't sleep around, he's not looking for a tight moral structure. His life is absolutely impeccable and Jesus says, you have to be born again. Jesus says, you guys gotta get this. He says, these people down here that you think of, this, these convicts, these drug addicts, you know, the, the low people, the poor. Yeah, they need to have a born-again experience. But you know what, Nicodemus? So do you. What's he doing? Now, friends, listen. This is so profound what Jesus is doing here that he chooses this message for this guy. You know why? Because by saying that to Nicodemus, he's taking away your excuses. See, you can't say to Jesus, oh, well, that's just for emotional people. You can't say to Jesus, well, it's just for those people who need pat answers. You know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. No, you can't say that. You can't say, well, that born again stuff is just for people who need a tight moral structure. No, no, no. Jesus looks at every human being and he says, no, 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 it's for you. In fact, unless you're born again, you will not what? You will not see the kingdom of God. And look at verse seven. He says, Look at this. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. That should not shock you. Who needs to be born again? Everybody say us. Who needs to be born again? Nicodem and there we go. Being born again is for all of us. Now, what does it mean then if those misconceptions are wrong? Write this down. Being born again first, and at the very least means, to be given a new spiritual awareness or a new insight into reality. Again, a new spiritual awareness, a quickening. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Paul writes and he says, and I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would be able to comprehend something. What's he talking about? He's talking about a new spiritual awareness that at bare minimum, you begin to realize, write this down first, that you're not all that. Write that down. That you're not all that. As good as you think you are, you actually suck. And not only are you not all that, but you're actually just like everybody else. Write that down. Now, by the way, this is an essential of the gospel. You don't understand the gospel unless you understand this. I am a sinner. I am broken, beat up, and burnt out. There is no hope for me. I deserve hell. I am done. That's half of the gospel right there. Isn't that great news? But it's only when you recognize that do you recognize that you actually need a savior. You're desperate for a savior. And you want to make him number one in your life. And he says, Nicodemus, you, you, even you, you member of the Jewish ruling council, I tell you the truth. No one can even perceive the kingdom of God 
unless he is born again. Who? Us. Now, at the very least, born again means that. But I want to expound and I want to press it just a little bit. I told you one point. It can't be superficial change. You can't start this year and just say, well, I'm just going to change this and change that and change this. Again, a new coat of paint on a house that's fallen apart isn't going to help very much. It might look good for a minute, but it's not going to last. How many of you want change that lasts? Amen. If you're online, just write, I do. Pray for me today. Let me press this a little bit and tell you about what born again is. Ready? Write this down. First of all, you need to understand to be born again is morally radical. It is morally radical. Why? Because if what he's saying, if he's saying even you, Nicodemus, as good as you are, as moral as you are, even you have to start at ground zero. Nicodemus, Everything you've done counts for nothing. Can you imagine that? Guys, here's a guy that by the time they're an adult, they have to memorize the entire Torah. They, they memorize the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? It's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of us haven't even read that far. They memorized it. Committed it to memory to be a Pharisee. And, and tried to live as righteous a life as possible. Over 700 laws that they would follow down to the most minute detail. And Jesus looks at him and he says, all your hard work is meaningless to me. Can you imagine that? It counts for nothing. Jesus is saying, you're no further ahead than anybody else. The prostitute, the drunk, the homeless, whoever it is, the morally corrupt Everybody has to start over. Now, Nicodemus hears that, and he's like, what? Jesus says, none of your goodness. Now, listen to me, Christian, listen. Jesus says, none of your goodness, none of your money, none of your achievement, none of your success, none of your law-keeping, none of it counts for anything you have to acknowledge you're just as needy as anybody else. You remember last week we looked at Zacchaeus and we said, because of Zacchaeus, anyone can change. But because of Zacchaeus, only anyone's can change. If you think you're a somebody, guess what? You're a nobody. Because the only one who changes are anyone's. It's just us. It's we. And we're all in that same boat. Now, that is morally radical, to say you can do nothing good. Let me tell you what else. It is, write this down, it is psychologically radical. Because when Jesus Christ says, and I'm only gonna take a second on this, but when he says, notice this, he says, to become a Christian is to be born again. You say, am I born again? Well, are you a Christian? Well, to become a Christian is to be born again is what Jesus is saying. That means... Among other things, you actually get a new consciousness. You really feel like you're living a different life when you become born again. Now, I don't know how many of you have experienced that. I know that there are a lot of people, I'm sure, here that would say, I'm a Christian. Maybe there are some of you. Hopefully, there are several of you that would say, I'm not yet a Christian. I love it that you're here. But probably there are many of you that would say, I'm a Christian but if you're born again, if you're really a Christian, then you've experienced something psychologically that you feel like you're living kind of a different life. 
You say, well, what do you mean? I mean that internally your priorities begin to change. You really do have a shift in your identity psychologically. Those things do begin to change. This is why Paul writes to the church. And I'm I'm telling you this so you look for it in your life. Paul writes to the church and look at what he says. He says, this is the book of Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your what? Which is being by its. And to be made new in the attitude of your what? Now, just underline that phrase, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Because that's what we're talking about today. That there's something psychological that happens. And therefore, because that happens, you're made new in your minds. He goes on and he says, and so you put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Because God begins to change that. And so what is this saying? It's saying the same thing I read to you from Philippians, isn't it? It's saying you begin to work out what God works in. Put off, put on. By the way, guys, this is why time with Jesus is so important. This is why we're encouraging you to get up every single day and start your day with Jesus. Now, is it legalistic? Do you have to, can you, can you, can you take your lunchtime and spend time with Jesus? Sure you can. But why do I like it to tell you to give him your morning? Because it's symbolic. It's like the first of your money. You're saying, God, I give you my first of everything. You're my first relationship. You're my first hour. You're my first 10%. You're my first everything. It is never a bad habit to make Jesus first. And yes, you can get out of bed. You can do it. I love Psalm 5. This is not in your notes. I just thought of it right before I came up here, so I wanted to come out. Psalm 5, the psalmist says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sign. This is someone who's sign. It's someone who's down and depressed. You, you don't have to feel good to get up and give time to Jesus. You don't have to feel like you're in a great mood, by the way. How many of you wake up in a great mood? Give me a show of hands. How many of you have to have 10 cups of coffee first, and then you might get there? There you go. Now notice, this person gets up, their sign, and it says, listen to my cry for help. This is obviously somebody in need. Listen to my sign, listen to my cry for help, my king and my God. For to you I pray, and verse three of chapter five of the psalm says this, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Amen. In the morning, I lay my request before you and I wait in expectation. Let all who take refuge in you be glad, it says. Glad means to be blessed. Some of you say, I want to live the blessed life. This is telling you how to get it. (laughs) Blessed means happy. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, those that love your name. For surely the Lord, you bless the righteous and surround them with favor as a shield. Guys, Spend time with Jesus. There is a reason why, as a senior pastor of the church, I, I, I started from day one in, in my new role of, of divvying out my Tuesdays and Thursday mornings to early morning prayer, my prayer time at the church, so that even those of you that don't know how to do it would have a place you can go and learn and get discipled. You can come to early morning prayer. Some of you need to, uh, you know, you need to kick in the butt to get, get it happening. Let me kick you in the butt. You come Tuesday and Thursday. 
and get in the community of people and spend some time with Jesus over here in our prayer lounge. 6 a.m., it's a great time. Now, what happens is you start spending time with Jesus to nurture that psychological difference. And guys, it's like you're living a different life, and that's fair to say. And by the way, it's not because you have a dissociative disorder. It's not because you have schizophrenia. It's not because you have amnesia. You remember your old life, but you're different. And in some ways, you look back on your old life, and you remember what you did, but you don't remember why you did it. Because your desires are changing. Now, here's the third thing about being born again. Write this down. The scripture teaches, this is really good, that it's supernaturally radical. Why? Because when Jesus uses the term born again, he's speaking of a new principle of supernatural life that's put into you. Notice verse six, when he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the what? And then he look, look at verse eight. It says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is what? Born of the spirit. Now guys, you need to know what, what, what Jesus is doing here is he's actually summarizing and quoting Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Now you've got to understand this. That's in the old covenant or the old testament. And it's in Ezekiel, in those chapters that the prophet Ezekiel says, when the new covenant comes, God's speaking here, and God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of what? And I will put my spirit, come on, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's why it's psychologically different. That's why it's supernaturally different. By the way, this is what baptism is all about. Baptism is an outward symbol of an internal reality that you recognize God's doing this. I'm being baptized because I sense that God is doing this and I've committed myself to it. And then, by the way, the prophet Ezekiel goes on from Ezekiel chapter 36. He jumps over to Ezekiel 37. And this is a famous passage where you see these dry bones and these bones are dead. I mean, as dead as dead could be. And he says, son of man, prophesy to the bones. And in comes the wind. And the wind comes in and God says in 37, I will put breath in you and you will come to what? And I will put my spirit in you and you will what? Live God's work. God's work. See, it's supernatural. That's why I can say if you're a Christian, you begin to notice some things in your life because as you've had the disposition to open up to God, we're gonna talk about that in a minute, God begins to do this kind of thing. Now, here's something I want to say about this. It is a progressive work. In other words, this doesn't all just happen all at once in one moment. No. Do you want to know how I know that? Well, you see this all throughout the scripture, but look, for example, at 1 Peter. Notice what it says here. 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, for you have been what? There it is again, born again. Okay? This is Peter talking now. For you have been born again, not of but of, through the, again, pointing you back to the word of God, get into God's word. But notice it says here, you have been born again of of what kind of seed? But do you notice it's seed? 
Notice it's seed. That's what's important. It doesn't say plant. It's not, it doesn't just happen. What do seeds do? They grow into something gradually over time. As you're in God's word, as you lean on the Lord more, you grow into more. And God progressively begins to change you and advances you to be made in his likeness. Why does North Point do Bible studies? Look at this picture. Why does North Point do Bible studies? Why does North Point do core classes? Why does North Point offer small groups and tell you to get with others? Why are we having a Sunday morning service? Because we're creating an environment that nurtures the growth. But we don't cause the growth. And you don't cause it either. It is a supernatural work if you just begin to yield to God. Now, by the way, because it's supernaturally radical, it's also, write this down, visionally radical. Visionally radical. Because, here's why, visionally, because, because you get a whole new vision for your life. Maybe once your life was all about how much you could acquire, but suddenly you start to care more about who you become than what you acquire. Maybe once it used to be how much you can get and now it's how much you can give. In other words, here's what starts to happen. Your ambitions begin to conform themselves to the image of God as you are made in the image of God. Your ambitions change. The scripture says the Lord gives you your heart's desire. And suddenly you find your desires, your appetites are different. Finally, here's the last thing that I would say about this, and I'm going to spend a minute on it. It's so important. Write this down. Being born again is foundationally radical. Now, here's what I mean. This is something, guys. This is amazing. It's foundationally radical. In other words, your whole foundation has to change. Why? All right, look at verse 2. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher, You've come from God to teach us. The miracles you perform prove that you've come from God to teach us. You're a teacher. You can just look in your notes. I don't have this on the screen for you. But what happens is at verse two, he says, you're a teacher, you're from God. Jesus interrupts him. Did you notice that? Jesus, by the way, is always interrupting people. How rude is Jesus? (laughs) You remember the story of the woman at the well? The woman comes to him and he says, you know, he starts, he starts talking about, you know, water and all this stuff. And, 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 you know, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. He immediately starts talking about her sex life. I mean, she doesn't bring it up. He brings it up. I mean, Jesus is rude. Now here, this man comes to Jesus and he pays him a compliment. He says, I see that you're a rabbi. Jesus interrupts him and says, I tell you, you have to be born again. Why is he changing the subject? Guys, here's something you gotta understand about Jesus. Jesus abruptly, vehemently, if you read this story, you go and read this story later, the whole thing, you're gonna see that Nicodemus doesn't even get a word in edgewise. Jesus is so rude. Jesus' first statement is 30 words. His second statement is 20 words. His third statement is four words. And after that, Nicodemus never even speaks again. Jesus just rides right over the guy. Why? What's going on here? Why? Listen. Nicodemus says, you are essentially a teacher. And then Jesus, the Christ, spends the whole rest of the passage basically saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you believe that I'm just a teacher, you will never be born again. Ever. 
And then notice what he says. This is the secret to the whole passage. You ready? Notice what he says. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him, all of us may have eternal life. He's taking this. This is what's incredible about Jesus. He's taking this obscure little story out of Numbers 21 in which the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And by the way, here's what happened. They were bitten by a bunch of snakes. And the children of Israel, they're all lying there dying. And it looks like they're going to be wiped out. You know, they're dying in, in convulsions with high fevers. Their systems are full of poison. And let's just go to Numbers, because he's quoting Numbers. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live so Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, what happened? He lived. Such a weird little story, isn't it? But what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, and he may be saying to you, you say that I've come to teach you. I've come to save you. Don't you see what you think you need is more teaching and what I'm saying you need is a whole new life. Do you see that people turn to Christianity because they think they need a new teaching? They think they need a moral system. They think they need to know how to please God and if they please God well enough or good enough that God will accept them. But don't you see what you're doing is you're just turning Christianity into another religious moral system. You have minimized Christianity into moralisms. That's not at all what it is. Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, if you think I'm a teacher, I didn't come to teach you, I came to save you. And unless you can break through your teacher paradigm, basically, Nicodemus, you think I'm a helper. You think I've just come to bless your life and make you happy. You think I'm a teacher. Nicodemus, you think religion is about doing your best and, and following the law. He says, you're never gonna be born again. You have to break out of the teacher paradigm and into the I'm your savior paradigm. Now I'm gonna tell you this, guys. You will never break into the savior paradigm unless you know what a sinner you are. It's not popular to say that today. How many pastors do you know or listen to that are calling you sinners all the time? It's just not a popular thing to say today. Nobody wants to believe that anymore. But I'm telling you, that's half the gospel. Because you'll never recognize your need of a savior until you realize how low you are. Now, I'm gonna tell you, this is, by the way, how Luther did it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was a monk who tried to live for God and serve God. He was already a priest. He did his best to please God. But he says, then in anguish, I pondered Romans 1.17. And it was this verse that changed his life. Let's read it together. It says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Suddenly it dawns on him, all of my good works are for nothing. It's all about trusting Jesus. And that's the only thing that saves me. That's it. See, that's so mind-blowing because some of you you feel so guilty right now and you think God hates you because of your morals. And don't you see you're living by works? You're measuring yourself through your works. You're living religiously. God already knows you're an idiot. God already knows you're a sinner. 
God already knows you're a scumbag. I'm going to get connection cards now that I said scumbag. (laughs) God already knows that you don't have it together. You have not surprised God with your immorality. But he desperately pleads with you to begin to work out your changing. Be delivered. Live differently. You're not... You're not going to get approved by God, though, because you change. It's because you're approved by God that you will change. So what should your attitude be then? Let's close with these thoughts. This is your disposition. Number one, write this down. Just some words I'm going to give you. What should your attitude be if you really want to break through? Deep change. Number one, your attitude should be thoughtful. It should be thoughtful. Why? Well, because in 751, there's a really interesting statement where Nicodemus gets up and he tries to say something to the Sanhedrin. Again, this is four chapters later. Remember, Nicodemus was in chapter three. Now he's in chapter seven. And they're all talking about Jesus. And Nicodemus gets up and he says this. He says, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? Now he says that. Because they're all talking about, should we condemn Jesus? Remember, he's with the elite, the religious people. And he says, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And you know what all the other Sanhedrin, all the other Pharisees did? They laughed at him and they told him to sit down. But you know what? It's clear he's still listening to Jesus. He's still trying to be thoughtful. See, he's not like Zacchaeus. See, change happens for different people differently. Zacchaeus changed. Anyone can change. Zacchaeus experienced Jesus, got a glimpse of Jesus. Boom, I'm gonna give 50% of my wealth to the poor and I'm gonna pay everybody back 400% if I've ever cheated them. Boom, change happens immediately. In Nicodemus's case, it's not like that at all. You see in chapter seven, he's still figuring it out. He's still trying to understand it. But he's at least thoughtful as you should be. Here's the second thing, write this down. Humble. You should be humble. It's because you're thoughtful that you realize you're humble. By the way, <laughs> let me ask you a question. How many of you, first of all, let's just start with this. How many of you celebrate your birthday? Come on, just raise up your hand. Okay, you do. Should you really get the credit for your birthday? <laughs> Why do you make your birthday all about you? <laughs> Who actually did the work on your birthday? Everybody say thank you, mom. Yeah, your next birthday, why don't you send your mom some flowers and throw her a party and send her a gift. Now, here's why. Listen, for a baby to be born, it actually doesn't have to do anything. It's only through the mother's labor. It's only through the mother's pain that a baby is brought into the world. Don't you see what I'm saying? Are you already connecting the dots? Something, somebody else is burdened. Somebody else has to suffer. Somebody else has to go through the labor. Somebody else has to go through the anguish for you to be born again. You can't make yourself a Christian. You can't. Humbly you say, Jesus, only you can do that. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of it. What should your attitude? It should be thoughtful. It should be humble. What should your attitude be if you really want change? Write this down. 
It should be hopeful. Why? (laughs) Because do you remember when he called it seed? It's seed, which means you may not see anything right at first, but you start to notice it starts to grow. But here's the thing. It's not just seed. What kind of seed did it say it was? Imperishable seed. Enduring seed. Seed that doesn't die easily. Friend, if God has planted in your heart, you can be hopeful he's going to grow you as you change in your disposition and attitude toward him. You yield, you yield. You put him in the driver's seat. You say, Jesus, you're the CEO of my life. And you're not just the CEO, Jesus, you're the CFO of my life. You're the boss. You're the king. Paul writes to the church and he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, let's read it together. Here we go, everybody. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's hopeful, imperishable seed. And then finally, last thing I'd say is, what should your attitude be? It should be trusting. Jesus, I trust you and you alone for my salvation, for my deliverance. Don't trust myself. And Jesus, I trust that what you did is enough for me. And everybody said? Let's pray. Father, thank you for every man and woman, every young man, every young woman, every person that's watching this right now, that's here, that's online, that's out in Kerman right now listening. God, I ask that you would be with them and touch them in the name of Jesus. My, the words that we've shared, they're just words until you give them power. So would you do that? Open the eyes of our heart that we would see. You said we can't even perceive the kingdom of God unless we're born again. We won't even see it. Lord, help us to see. Would you pray this prayer with me, everybody out loud? And it may be the first time, but just pray it with your heart to Jesus. Here we go. Jesus, I give you my life. Come and live within me. Forgive me of my sin. I want to know you. I want to be born again. Change me and make me new. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.